One of the greatest challenges God's people have faced is discerning how to live in the world without conforming to its standards and practices. From the beginning of their history as a nation, Israel found itself unable to resist the temptation to mirror the cultures around them. She worshipped in the way of the Egyptians around the golden calf. She demanded a king to be like her Canaanite neighbors, and even sacrificed her children in the fire to Moloch. But not everything about culture is bad. Paul deliberately used culture to his advantage wherever he shared the gospel. The church continued to follow his example of becoming all things to all people, as evidenced in something as simple as her architecture. Castle-like cathedrals during the Renaissance. University-style buildings in the Enlightenment. CEO pastors running megachurch corporations in the era of big business. Entertainment-driven services designed to attract a new generation to the gospel. So how do we adapt our message to the culture without losing the gospel? How do we keep the American dream from corrupting our call to follow Jesus? How do we reach the world without giving in to its values? And the challenge of discerning how to live in the world without conforming to its standards and practices continues. Not all winter is the same. And so it's easy for those of us that don't have to experience the harshest forms of winter to kind of keep it in its nostalgic sense. I love sweaters. I love, um, I love the fact that school got canceled today and now we can stay at home and start a fire and, uh, and really just spend some good family quality time. I like the fact that I don't have a test today. I love winter, but that's not winter, actually. That's winter in Oklahoma and there's a difference. My three sons uh, did not grow up where my wife and I grew up, which is the frozen permafrost tundra of Canada. And so all they know about are winters that look like southern Missouri and southern or in, in kind of central Oklahoma. That's all they know. Back when my parents were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary, we went home. We usually don't do this um, because when you go to Canada in December or January or February, the Canadians are still hibernating, and so you don't really get to interact with them. They're hiding in their huts. So it's complicated to do. So basically, uh, we wait until it's summer so that we can go and, and, and spend time with them. But it was one of those things where the, the occasion was already set, and so we went, and it was winter, and we took our boys, and right Two days before we flew back, um, a storm hit. Now, when storms, at least when the snowpocalypse is threatened to be coming here uh, in Oklahoma, it's usually like this. Hey, guys, run for your lives. Go to Walmart. Buy everything you possibly can. Um, we're probably going to be getting maybe three to four inches of snow. Uh, school's canceled for the next three weeks. You know, that's kind of how. And then we get like half an inch, right? And the good news is they canceled school the day before, three days after. Um, that's kind of how it works, but not so where we come from. And so my wife and I were driving around in the middle of this snowstorm where in Canada they measure it usually by the half foot or by the foot. So it's not uncommon, hey, we'll be, we'll be getting somewhere between two and a half to three feet of snow. That's not that uncommon, even in the big cities, okay? So that's what we're used to. And so we're driving and we had our middle son with us who was in the back seat. He was about nine or 10 years old. And then as we're driving and the snow is literally just all around, it's just, it's just somewhat craziness, my son is in the back seat, almost in tears, questioning our parenting, 
as to whether or not this is a smart thing, wondering if he is about to die. Dad, can you see? I don't even, I can't see out of my window. How do you see out of your window? I don't think we should be outside. I don't think we should, and he is panicking. And I'm thinking to myself, what is wrong? Oh, that's right, he's from Oklahoma and Missouri. They don't understand that this, my wife and I, it was like the most normal thing in the world. We're going to Walmart because it's only two and a half feet of snow. So that's, that, that's just, we call that summer, okay? So we're driving, and as this happens, we're, we're kind of heading back to, our, to where we're staying, and we stop at this intersection. My son, flipping out, we look to the left, and there's a school, and it's recess. Outdoor recess. I am not, I, it's true, isn't it? My, I might be prone to exaggerate. My wife is nodding her head. This is actually one of those true, true stories. They got about two to two and a half feet of snow. Outdoor recess. It was minus 26 Celsius. Okay, outdoor recess. And I'm watching these children having fun and my son freaking out in the back seat. Same winter. Why? Well, he's not used to it. He, he sees stuff like this and panics. He, he doesn't realize there are ways to protect ourselves. There are ways to actually be involved in winter. We don't just have to go and, and be afraid. We, don't, we can actually realize that if we have the right view of it, if we prepare for it, like we talked about last week, when the warning comes, instead of us running, we can actually engage it. We'll talk about that next week. And instead of being swept up in it, we can be grounded. We can be grounded deep into who Jesus Christ is. We can be grounded deep into God's word and actually be useful to a culture that is deciding to abandon Jesus Christ and move him to the margins of society. But listen, we don't always figure that out. Um, there are three, at least three things I want us to realize what is it that we get it wrong? When do we get this idea of, of, of how to kind of deal with a, a shifting culture? What are some ways in which we can get it wrong? Here's the first one. One of the worst ways we can deal with culture is to just stand on the sidelines and complain. Man, you remember when it was the good old days? We talked about that. Not wise to say such things. Man, well, back when I was a kid, okay, you're 18. That was a couple weeks ago, Right? But it's amazing how it's a, a first response. I love to ask this question. How many of you are a complainer and you love to complain? Oh, good, nobody. Okay, one, I got one. I, in both services, last service, there were none. Isn't that good? Isn't that good to hear? There were no complainers in the entire first service. But that is, our, that, that is, a, that is an easy response. I, I, I watch on Facebook, I watch on social media, um, I, I, I get the conversations that we have about how bad things are getting and why they're getting bad, and, and literally it's just this feeding frenzy in fear and paranoia and anxiety, and I know what you're thinking, but it's true, we're all going to die, I know, I know, but you're just proving my point. Like, there's a difference between speaking the truth and complaining, to speak the truth is to realize like who I'm grounded in, Jesus Christ, what I'm grounded in, the word of God, and then speaking truth to a society that is moving in the wrong direction. Complaining has a lot more bite and less substance. It's more of like throwing jabs, but you really don't want to get into a fight. There really is a difference. The Bible warns against complaining and arguing. 
But I think the Bible speaks very clearly about actively engaging and actively speaking truth to a culture. As Christians, our jobs are to do more than just social commentary. But to genuinely speak out and to live out and offer an alternative way of living, an alternative way of knowing, an alternative way of loving, thinking. We're not going to complain. Number two, here's when we get it wrong. We get it wrong when we conform, when we find ourselves just giving in completely. I remember it was 1996, and I was in rural Illinois at the time. I was in graduate school, and I'm speaking to some high school students who in 1996, when they're in high school, I mean, these people are now, what, in their 50s or 60s or something? Like, these are people that are older. Okay, they're not quite that old, but they're older people now, right? 37, there you go, thank you very much, 37 years old. So I'm talking to the, I'm 47, I'm talking to these 18-year-olds these in 1996, and I'm asking them questions about identity and about sexual orientation. These are Bible belt raised kids, and that's when I realized it's not going to be too long until society doesn't adopt the Christian standard, the orthodox position, um, what, the, what the Bible actually says, the way that God ordained things that we see in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, but in the end it was going to see, yeah, but I've got a friend who, and that guy on, on, on uh, um, uh, what's the TV show, well, Grace, Will and Grace, thank you very much. Um, the, that Jack guy is so funny, and this becomes the way in which we then begin to view sexual orientation. We're no longer grounded. We're now ungrounded. We're, we're, we're literally free to think for ourselves, to have our friends and the relationship that we have define what is right or what is wrong. This is 1996, and as I was asking them, the majority of the young people just thought, well, as long as you love each other, well, where, where did you get that idea from? Well, my friend told me. And, and then his friend said the same thing. And then we got together, there was eight of us, and we all agreed. And that's the new standard for truth. And I remember thinking, it's not that far. It's not that far. I mean, we, we literally decide we are going to do, we are gonna believe what we believe because society is the one shaping our thoughts, shaping our attitudes. And it's not just, it's us. It's not just you, it's It's us. And it's not even new. It's not like this happened, it started in the 60s at Berkeley, you know? It's not one of those kinds of things. It actually goes even before that. Before we just go, well, it was better before. Well, when was that before? And I'm not just even talking about kind of general things. I'll talk about like the church. And I'm not even just talking about like the Spanish Inquisition and the Crusades. It's, it's far more uh, kind of intrusive in the way that we think and the way that we act even than that. You can actually see it in our architecture. So it's not just these sins, it's literally being completely swept up in our culture where we've lost the ability to discern which way is up, which way is down. Like fish in water, we have no idea what we're swimming in because it's just second nature. But way back when the church began to kind of flex its political and, and power, its muscle, um, it, it began to adopt not just ideas that were worldly, but you can really see it in its architecture. The church began to build large cathedrals that looked just like the castles across the street. After all, they got a castle. Who doesn't want a castle? Seriously. Who doesn't want a castle? And, and you want to know why we all wear, well, not we, I don't wear robes, but you want to know when like robes become introduced and why that? Well, because that's what kings wear. 
So the, the kings, and, and they have robes, and they have castles, and the church, we're going to have robes, and we're going to have castles too. And we're going to approach culture in the same way that the world approaches culture. And nobody even knew to question it. By the way, I don't even know if it's necessarily bad. I just find it fascinating in realizing that to be swept up in our culture's way of thinking and way of acting is actually a universal human condition. From the very beginning, we needed Jesus. From the very beginning, we needed to be tied into his word. The Enlightenment hits. That's a period of time in which reason and thought began, uh, kind of this pursuit for objective truth uh, began to rage through Europe and we began to build universities, Christians building universities and teaching from these universities and it didn't take long until churches began to kind of organize themselves with pews and with lecterns and instead of it being a lectern off to the side and instead of like the word being pronounced down the middle and us having this experience, no, now all of a sudden it was a lecture format, okay? Welcome to class, Theology 101. Let me explain to you the truth. Let me teach you. And the church really did adopt a very university uh, kind of styled worship. Our, our liturgy was deeply influenced by our culture. And we began to trade things in. And, and listen, the, the truth is valuable. It really is. I mean, it's, it's paramount. It's central. We need to be grounded in the truth. But what happens when a culture loses the ability to say, why are we doing this? And the Industrial Revolution hits. And for the first time, um, dads began to leave like where they would live and where they would work, where they would provide for their families, and they went off to become more productive. We began to work in factories, and, and, and produce, and, and production became paramount, and the church, literally 100 or so years ago, began to follow suit. And so the church, still kind of functioning from that teaching format, now all of a sudden became very intentional about creating productive people. What you need to be is productive. So we're gonna teach you how to be productive and we're all gonna be productive. By the way, is that a bad thing? Not my point. But it's amazing how, like, instead of actually asking some pretty profound questions about why we're doing this and, and whether or not we're, 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 in too, we're in too close, we're in too deep, whether or not we're actually asking better questions like, is this the right way to live? Is this the right way to organize our families? Is this the right way to organize our time? Well, what else are we supposed to do? Hello, it's the world. How else do we engage it? How else do we live in it? My point is that when there is no ability to speak truth or to hear truth from outside, then in the end, we all just go along. And the problem that we are facing now is not something that started yesterday. And all of a sudden, since we're producing things and we're uh, we're, we're producing a very effective and capable people and that becomes our job, then, then I become more of a CEO. That's my job and that's why we have church boards that mirror like boards of companies. And, and we literally feed into this consumer culture. And, and I think the last wave that we're really seeing where the church, and, and by the way, the, the buildings begin to look more like conference centers because that's what corporate America has. And now, entertainment and consumerism. It's the next phase. I, 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 again, I don't know if it's bad. I don't think we need to run. By the way, I like to ask this question. Where do I run to? Back to the castle? 
back to the boardroom? Like, where do I even run to? There is an answer. His name is Jesus. He's actually given us an alternative way of living and thinking and acting. But first, we need to be able to realize, wow, we, we created something that now we're not know if we really want. It's kind of like that degree, you're in your third year, you're about to finish up, you're like, I don't know if I want this degree. This isn't what I thought it was going to be. And, 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 and truly, we're way in too deep culturally. So how do we handle this? We, we literally created like a buffet style. Um, we've got a children's ministry over here for those of you with kids. I hope you like it. It's really here designed for you. Um, I hope you love our youth ministry. It's really, really awesome. We're really hoping that you can engage your kids and they're gonna have a great time. They're gonna find friends. And if they don't find friends, then it'll be the end of the world. But we're gonna do our best to make sure they have friends. We're gonna make sure we're gonna always tell them, you need to be nice to each other. You need to be nice to each other. Please be nice to each other. Please invite other people in. Have you heard this? Promise me. You'll invite other people in. Promise me. Okay. And so this is how we organize it. We got a Stephen ministry for people that are going through their troubles. We've got a financial ministry for people that have financial issues. And, and we walk into our churches, which by the way, I'm describing Sunnybrook here, okay? And we walk into our churches, and it's like, is this the China buffet? And I wish I could say, and I'm here to tell you, you need to stop it, but like it's me and my wife too. First year of teaching Bible college, training pastors for ministry and church, church shopping on the sides. Trying to find that one place that we can go where our kids are gonna be entertained, where the music we like, where the preacher's challenging. Like, we want that. And realizing that we're, you know, we're trying to, you know, kind of sprinkle the Holy Spirit in there too, following where God wants us. I won't speak completely for my wife, but I, I think I was more of a consumer at that point in realizing, like, something is broken here. Like I've completely conformed to the way of the world. And I'm trying to follow Jesus. And something is profoundly broken. Not only do we complain or conform, but we also cower. We're afraid to stand up and say like certain things are wrong or certain things are bad or certain things are against God's design. Again, it's, well, it's more, we love to use this word. It's more complicated than that. Can I stop talking now? I admitted it was complicated. Can I be done? Can I just kind of slip off the stage? I don't, I don't want to really say that like God designed in Genesis chapters one, two, and three, one man to be married to one woman for eternity. Okay, or for, for as long as they both shall live. I guess not eternity, for as long as they live. Like that's exactly the way the Bible teaches it. I don't, want to, I don't want to be labeled. That's what I don't want. I don't want to be labeled as a radical. I don't want to be labeled as a fundamentalist. I don't want to be labeled as a hater. I don't want to be any of those things. So why don't we just talk about how complicated things are and we'll never actually call like sin, sin. And all of a sudden, listen, we're all absolutely offended by the videos that are being, coming out on Planned Parenthood. But listen, who really wants to talk about this? I mean, again, that's why it's easier to do it on Facebook, so at least we don't have to actually have the other person challenge us. And I'm, we're, just, we're just afraid to say anything about what we believe and, and literally to give an alternative way of thinking and living, being married, raising children, dealing with struggles, but yet, Jesus Christ speaks some very profound truth. And, and by the way, I know this. 
I don't believe that everyone here is even a follower of Jesus Christ, and all are welcome here. I, I love the fact that every Sunday I know that I'm not just speaking to followers of Jesus Christ. Some of you are seeking, some of you are interested, some of you are here because a, a friend brought you. But the majority of this message actually is designed to be spoken to those who are brothers and sisters in Christ, who share the faith that we confessed of God the Father and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, and he's coming back to judge. That's what we believe. And therefore, we believe the words of Jesus Christ when he actually says, speaking of not just people, but followers of him, he says this, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Question implying a non-answer, meaning it, it can't be. And the church needs to hear this. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to hear this, that we are the salt of the world. But if, if a salt loses its taste, then what good is it? Jesus says, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And that's why I'm not really surprised that Christian people who just get caught up, who are not grounded in Jesus Christ and in what he says about the word of God, literally become of no use culturally. Because what, do, what, what can you say to me that's not already being said as followers of Jesus Christ, grounded in him and grounded in his teachings? The only way in which we can offer any kind of alternative way of living, being married, raising kids. Now what's painful is the fact, and, I, and this is, again, it's both good and bad, but there really was a time in the recent past I want to look at our specific situation. There was a time in the recent past where the church actually had some, some, some strong favor in the world. That we were, maybe not at the head of the cultural table, but we definitely had a place. We definitely had a say. We definitely had a majority that was moral. And in the midst of all of that, here's what I want us to recognize, that as the culture shift is taking place, we have lost it. And I think it is good for us to learn from our mistakes. And where did we lose it? How was it that the church at least had a say, had a voice? And where did that go? And here's what I believe happened. I believe that we squandered it. That in the moments of, of, uh, of say, fall or the, those moments of summer where it was easier, where it was more acceptable to even share these things, what we did was we sold out to lesser than Jesus and lesser than his teachings about himself. Four things caused us to literally be dismissed by culture. The first thing, something that was coined just a few years ago, something known as moral therapeutic deism. Moral, being a good person. Therapeutic, hey, how can this help me? Deism, a God that is far off and removed. And so much of our Christian teaching, so much of the conversations that we were having, both in the marketplace and out of the marketplace, in the political arena, outside of the political arena, from the pulpit were 12 steps on how to have a happier marriage, 12 steps on how to be a nicer person, 12 steps on how to deal with everything, and we were not tying them directly. We were not tying them directly to Jesus Christ and to who he is. And I was more than satisfied to just have a room full of good people who are happy 
and who know that, sure, there's a God out somewhere, out there somewhere. I don't know how specifically he is involved in your life. Just know that he's there. Know someday you'll see him. Try to do your best. Be as happy as you can. And we had an opportunity to preach Jesus Christ, him crucified, follow him, narrow road, and we sold it out for be good, be happy, meet God someday. Kind of closely connected to that was we literally gave up the gospel for what I'll refer to as family or Judeo-Christian values. Family slash Judeo-Christian values. We, we literally, in the midst of this, this, this therapy session that we called church, we, we began to, instead of like talking about Jesus, began to talk about the values that support that and going back and being grateful for Judeo-Christian values, which by the way, I don't deny them and I'm even grateful for them. But the Bible says over and over and over again that it is not your goodness, it is not your values that are going to be the saving grace of yourselves or all of mankind, but it is first the work of Jesus. We didn't talk about him like we should have. In the end, he became somebody who really mastered how to be a great guy. Jesus knew how to be kind. You should be kind like Jesus. Jesus really knew how to care for the poor. You really should care for the poor like Jesus. There's just a fundamental difference between what I can do for the poor and what I can do for others and what Jesus does. Now listen, we need to be involved. We need to be engaged. I promise you, I will talk about that next week. But if I know lots of people who are engaged without Jesus Christ and it just leaves people starving spiritually. And sadly enough, it just gave kind of all of us this aura. I'm amazed at the number of people who think that just being spiritual is good enough. Uh, you know what? I mean, he's not a Christian, but he's really spiritual. And yeah, so is Marilyn Manson. Not kidding. Profoundly spiritual person. Very aware of what's going on around him. Very intelligent. I mean, you disagree with his morals. Hey, hey, hey. But who are we to judge? Um, actually, Jesus gives us lots of reasons why we should make assessments. Can I tell you one other thing that we did? Um, with the best of, by the way, best of intentions on these, there was no plot. There was no secret Christian conspiracy to, to ruin us. Uh-uh. We just decided to trade in Jesus for something less. Easy evangelism. I'll never forget the first time, and I'm, I'm not, not necessarily taking a shot. I just remember being shocked the first time I ever experienced this. I was in a church, okay? I didn't grow up in this kind of a church, but I grew up in a church, and at the end of the service, after a preacher preached some message about, I don't know, giving or something, after he was done with it, he wanted everybody to at least have an opportunity to hear the gospel. And so he kind of gave some appeal that you need to accept Jesus Christ, and then had us all close our eyes. You been here? When you close your eyes... And I promise nobody will know you're one of these people, Christians, you know. No one's looking. It won't, this, this will be over in a minute. Just raise your hand if you would like to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Okay, I didn't close my eyes. I'm looking around. Okay, wasn't the only one, by the way. And this peddler, well-intended, was going around offering an easy way to follow Jesus Christ. Now hear me, I know that that probably existed in a larger context, but it's, it's, it, it really is our culture. 
Like, I wanna follow Jesus in the convenience of my own schedule. Like, I got other things that are more important than him, and so if he can fit into my schedule, that's great. But we got this, and I got this, and I got this, and I got this, and if Jesus can find his way to kind of fit in here, then I'm fine with it, but I'm not organizing my life around him. I'm not one of those people. Now hear me. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not for making evangelism difficult. I'm for preaching the fullness of who Jesus Christ is and the fullness of his demands on our lives unapologetically. Just tell me that Jesus said more than close your eyes and raise your hand quietly if you wanna follow me. Yeah, Jesus actually even said things like, anybody who looks back after following me is not worthy of me. That one didn't make the list. But those are the words that Jesus gave. Yeah, but we're trying to grow bigger. We're trying to kind of feed the monster. We're trying to get as many people in as possible. I know people on the mission field that I had a friend that was doing some work in Russia when the wall first came down and he just came back and he said to the guy that was leading the revival, listen, these people don't even know what they're doing. The response of the missionary was, hey, listen, just get them wet, let God sort them out. That's not evangelism. That's not a life surrendered to Jesus Christ that brings God great glory. That's not salt. That's not light. That's light. L-I-T-E, not L-I-G-H-T. And again, not trying to make it difficult, but are we grounded in Jesus Christ? Are we grounded in his teachings? Are we grounded in what he says that we should do in terms of following the fullness of the Bible? And I actually think this is the part that I find interesting is that these things that begin to kind of creep into us, the, the newest one that we're going through right now is this trendy evangelism, or sorry, trendy relevance. Um, how do I, and again, I'm not against these things per se, but if I have one more friend kind of talk about how cool it is that they have a coffee shop in their church, and I'm not against coffee shops, I want one. I'd like a coffee shop, I'll say it now. I really would. Who, do, who likes coffee? Raise your hand. Who'd like a cool place to drink their coffee? Okay, it's not about the coffee shop, but you realize like we could get the coffee shop and miss Jesus and just be considered fools for eternity. And we just want to be accepted and cool. We're, I don't think any of us ever really left junior high spiritually maybe. I don't wanna be labeled. I don't wanna say what I actually think about abortion. I don't wanna actually say what I think about homosexual marriage. I don't wanna say what I actually think about because the truth is you don't understand and in the end, Culture shifts, the church gets disrupted, and we've become mutes. But we still go to church, we still study our Bibles. We are now completely unprepared, waking up a new day in a brave new world. And what makes it even more interesting to me is the fact that as these shifts take place, it's not even as simple as, well, you know, they're from the devil. They're not. I mean, here's what's fascinating to me is that 1 Kings 12, 24 gives us a different picture. It's the story of Israel. And Israel was this nation, God-appointed nation, and they had a king named Solomon. And Solomon decided to just follow the worldly trends. He married all these wives. He was sacrificing his children to other gods. 
And God said to him, for the sake of your father David, who I love, I will not punish you in your generation, but your son will see half of the kingdom ripped from him. And so they did. There was like a civil war in Israel. And King Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who was the reigning king, had a rival king, King Jeroboam, that competed against him. And there was a civil war, and the south which was where King David was from, where King Rehoboam was from, decided we are going to go up and we're not going to let the north secede. How's that for kind of irony, right? We're not going to let the north secede. And God interjected, and listen to what God said about this impending judgment. Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home because this thing is from me. You? God, you did this? You're the one that created this strife? You're the one that created this? Now hear me, I'm not a prophet in the same sense at all. But as I see the hand of God, I see many, many, many times throughout history, whether we, whether we are worshiping in castles or universities or corporate boardrooms or whether we're worshiping in our own new entertainment centers, I have seen the hand of God say, I will not be mocked. My truth was never put up to a vote. You can think whatever you want and be wrong. And I think a lot of what is happening around us, here in this room, in our own marriages, in our own circumstances, are God speaking to us saying, I will not be mocked. You are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And if you decide to not be salty or not be light, then you can be just thrown out and trampled by men. God speaks some pretty demanding and harsh words. God is not just a passive observer. I do not believe in deism. I believe in a very personal God who sent his only son, Jesus Christ, and he is the one in whom we should be grounded and on his word and on his teaching that is why what we do here is we don't turn back and we dream about a better time. We don't try to go back and build new castles and different universities. What we do is we actually recognize that we need to turn to Jesus and his teaching. It's as simple and as deep and as demanding and as complicated as him. Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven, everyone who hears these words of mine, speaking particularly the Sermon on the Mount, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus is essentially saying my disciples build their lives on my teaching, the fullness of my teaching. And the problem is when I talk to people about any issue, same-sex marriage or abortion, when I talk about it, they all wanna give me their opinion about themselves. I want to give you my opinions about myself, or I've got a friend who, instead of going back and dealing with the complexities and the difficulties of the truths of Christ as described in the Bible. And the problem is, listen, I mean, it, it's just a, a pooling of ignorance as we share our opinions. It really is. I mean, they could even be unbelievably insightful. But when they're not based or built on Jesus Christ, then we're not building on his sure foundation. Verse 25 says, the rain fell, the, cloud came, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. 
Now listen, I know storms come. I, I get it. I'm a lot like my son, scared in the back seat. But there's no one There's no one old enough that can speak to me like history can speak to me about how the church has tried and failed because it has been swept up by culture. There's no one in this world wise enough to actually give me a divine perspective other than Jesus Christ and his eternal word. So I want us to realize, yes, it is difficult, and yes, it is hard, and yes, the church has failed. But that doesn't mean that we are without hope. Jesus Christ speaks to us today and says, be grounded on me. In the book of Ezekiel, the great prophet sees this valley of dry bones and then all of a sudden God says to him, hey, Ezekiel, do you think these bones can live? And Ezekiel says, Lord, only you know. Now, what he's saying is, like, I don't know, but I know that you know the answer to this. He's saying, God, only with you. Only with you can things that are just the most profound and the most difficult, only in you can they be turned around. I got a, I got a letter a little while ago because just being reminded of the fact that prophets need prophets. It, it's, a, it's, it's not um, signed, which usually means it goes in my unsigned garbage can, okay? I don't understand why people send unsigned things, but this one I actually kept and I will keep actually. Pastor Jim so you know we're close. If not now, then when? With the release of Planned Parenthood videos and the awareness of exactly what happened to these tiny babies that are being ripped apart for profit, now, all in bold caps, would be the perfect time to speak up, also in bold caps, on behalf of these babies. This has been happening for over 40 years. It's not new news. You've known that these babies are being ripped apart in the womb. You've known that these babies are being born except for the head and their brains being sucked out so that their head collapses when they are delivered. Yet up to this point, you have been mostly silent, all in caps, boldly print, on the subject, and for that you are accountable to God alone. But as a pastor, you are to be a leader. Start leading on these issues. Be bold. Stand for life. Get out of the little church kingdom that you have built for yourself and lead our congregation and engage the world in these issues. Do something. Be pro-life. Get involved in pro-life work and encourage the people to do so as well. Do the job of the church, which is being ignored for far too long. And you know why I kept it? Because I need to hear truth. I need to be accountable. I need to recognize that yes, I have very strong opinions about how wrong and how broken and how sinful abortion is. And yes, we're trying to figure out ways in which we can reach out in such a way that we're not misunderstood and that we really want to help everybody involved, that we're not trying to be judgmental. We are trying to stand up for an injustice that is taking place. And so I take that letter and I literally, I've got it posted on my desk as a reminder that sometimes prophet needs prophets to speak truth so that I can hear truth. So I want to close with this. In Acts chapter 13, verse 36, there's a strange phrase, kind of an interesting, kind of a, kind of a final conclusion to King David's life. This is how it's written about this great king that was used by God. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers, and he saw corruption, meaning his body decayed. 
And do you realize that's what we are called to do? That when David was there, he served God's purposes for him in that generation. That is why it is critical that you and I are grounded on Jesus and on his truth. That we recognize that it is complicated and that the church has failed in so many ways and also succeeded in so many ways, but we cannot get swept up in cultural trends. We cannot just sit on the sidelines and complain. We cannot stand up and be cowardly. But in our homes and in our marriages and the way that we raise our children, the way that we go to school, in all of these areas, we can be grounded in the truth about who Jesus Christ is and what it really means to be his follower today.